Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name is Pip Adam and this is episode 116. Um, we are, I, we, I always say we, but really, well actually heaps of people help me so let's keep with we. Um, we this year are making um, a series called Beyond a Joke where I am asking guests to bring to the podcast something that has made them laugh. Um, this is episode seven of that and um, in this episode I'm speaking with Sarah Jane Barnett um, which is a joy. It's very lovely to talk to Sarah Jane Barnett um, and Sarah um, brought with them to the conversation um, Michael Schur's TV series The Good Place. Um, it was really nice to sort of revisit it, um, to have a reason to um, have a look at a couple of episodes and yeah, it, it didn't at first seem like, um, at first it seemed a bit mean asking someone who's written a book which deals with such serious and hard issues um, as Sarah Jane Barnett's new book, Notes on Womanhood, um, to come along and talk about things that are funny but I think Sarah is you know endlessly generous and I think that it actually turned out being a really interesting conversation where we touched on sort of the ethics of including other people's um, lives in our work. Um, we talked about the rhythms of comedy and how those can actually be used in writing um, to um, produce different effects. Um, we talked about um, how we might use laughter in our interpersonal relationships and we also um, talked about um, how um, some people, uh, humour can be used as a weapon, how sometimes people are told to take a joke and um, how that doesn't always feel great as a person who's been told to I'm um, too serious I can relate anyway it was a very wide-reaching um, conversation and um, it turned out that The Good Place was a perfect way in to talk about Sarah Jane's new book um, and yeah I just um, can't recommend Notes on Womanhood enough um, it's a really interesting book um, and it's available now almost everywhere um, it's published by Otago University Press and yeah I'd, I'd highly recommend reading it um, I have really enjoyed the conversations that have sort of come out of it as well with my friends and I think yeah the offering is huge that Sarah is making with this book um, the sort of opening of a conversation about ways to be woman so yeah thank you so much Sarah and um, yeah I hope you enjoy um, the podcast um, you may be listening to this on something other than Substack and that is great but if you are interested on um, in sorry coming over to Substack um, we have a better off read Substack and there is a link for that in the show notes to this and um, yeah we'd love to have you come on over um, and yeah you'll get a newsletter along with the podcast yeah and thanks to everyone who's already subscribed um, it's really nice to be thinking about people while I'm producing these and um, yeah and thank you also always to the people who have um, given financially who have um, become paid subscribers I really appreciate that um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I never know how to say how much I appreciate it. Um, I like to pay people that come onto the podcast and um, through um, paid subscribers, it means that um, I'm able to do that. And it also means that the podcast can stay sort of free for everybody. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, 
here is a chat with Sarah Jane Barnett. Hi Sarah, how are you? Hi Pip, I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Yay, I'm so glad to hear that. Hey, um, thanks heaps for um, agreeing to come along and be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm a big fan of this book and always love talking to you, always love all your work. Yeah, you're amazing. Um, I wondered if we could start off with you introducing yourself, however you want to do that. Cool, yeah, uh, sure thing. Uh, my name is Sarah-Jane Barnett. Um, I'm a Te Whanganui Atara writer editor, uh, teacher of creative writing, and a weaver. Um, I was born and grew up in Ōtotahi, uh, so I was there for, I think, the first 26 years of my life. Um, I'm Pākehā, and my family goes back to the British Isles on one side and Denmark on the other, um, and I live with my husband and son and our cat, Comet, uh, and I just published my third book, Notes on Womanhood, uh, which is a memoir that explores ideas of gender and uh, middle age, midlife. Awesome, awesome. I did, I, um, I did not realise that you were in um, the South Island for so long. I was, yeah, and then I then I came, I sort of moved around to the North Island, I was in Palmerston North for a little bit, Auckland for a little bit, and then I uh, ended up in Wellington, and and I was just like, this is obviously where I need to live, <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, and I haven't left, and probably won't leave. Yeah, I love it here, it's blooming great, it's blooming great. Um, now, I'm asking everybody to bring along something that has made them laugh. And um, I wonder if you just want to describe the something that you brought along for us to discuss. Well, yeah, absolutely. The, um, when I found out that the theme was uh, something, you know, for the podcast was something that made us laugh, I immediately thought of The Good Place, which is an American comedy TV series. Uh, it was created by... Uh, Michael Schur, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, um, and it started in 2016, and it, uh, yeah, it just immediately sprung to mind because I think it's one of the things that has made me laugh the most in my life. Um, so I'll just, should I just talk a little bit about the premise of the show? Yeah, that might be quite good. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll try not, yeah, I'll, I'll, when I get to the spoilers, but I will warn people that I'm going to <laughs> drop in some spoilers. Uh, so the premise of the show is that uh, Eleanor Shellstrop, who's played by Kristen Bell, she dies and then wakes up in The Good Place, um, which is a heaven-like afterlife uh, set in this beautiful utopian neighbourhood. And the first person she meets is the architect of the neighbourhood, uh, who's named Michael, who's played by Ted Danson of... Was it? Was it Cheers? That yes. Made him oh, yes. I remember yes. that as a kid. Oh. Um, so Eleanor, uh, in her life uh, before she died, was a self-admitted and very proud, selfish dirtbag, and she immediately knows there's been a horrible mistake, um, and that she shouldn't be in this neighbourhood, that she should be in the bad place, uh, and so she's incredibly worried about being found out, and she really wants to learn how to be you know, a person worthy of being in the good place. So in the first couple of episodes, she's introduced to other people who live in the good place, including her soulmate, Chidi. Um, everyone in the good place has a soulmate. Uh, and Chidi's played by Jackson Harper. Uh, and then there's Tahani, who's this uh, 
uh, very beautiful, rich, name-dropping British socialite played by Jamila Jamil, and Jason, who is Tahani's soulmate, uh, who's played by Manny Jacinto. Um, and Jason is also mistakenly in The Good Place and is posing as a monk, Jean Yu, who has taken a vow of silence. Uh, and actually, in his life before he died, he was a drug-dealing amateur DJ from Florida. Uh, he's oh, such a great character. Um, there's also Janet, who's this all-knowing all -knowing being uh, who's there. You know, the residents can call on her and she'll come and provide them with things. Uh, she's played by Darcy Carden. And so the, the premise is that Eleanor's in the good place. She's not meant to be there. And her soulmate, Chidi, is a professor of ethics and moral philosophy. And so Eleanor reveals to him that she's in you know, the wrong place, that she's an imposter, and convinces him to teach her ethics so that she can earn her place in the good place and not be sent to the bad place. And so, spoilers, so if you haven't seen The Good Place, um, I don't know, skip ahead or something. Uh, at the end of the first season, so the, these four friends you know, go through all these different trials together to try and keep Eleanor and Jason in The Good Place, and they're arguing with each other, and it's getting very heated, and they're all incredibly upset, and then Eleanor has this look of realisation on her face and proclaims, this is the bad place. And then Michael reveals that he's actually a demon who has been torturing them all along with their um, interpersonal dynamics. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I've brought along to talk about. Oh my goodness, it's so that is such a good description of it. And like I'm getting this kind of visceral body memory of watching it, and it's just oh my goodness. And I just wonder, like um, I think I saw an Instagram or somewhere you were talking about re-watching it and um you know I think you were watching the last episode and I was thinking about this idea of returning to it because it's a program that I often return to if I um oddly if I want comfort given the you know the sort of premise of it but I just wonder has it changed on subsequent viewings for you and I mean even if you want to say anything about this most recent viewing that you've had of it yeah well uh, I re-watched it I'd only watched it once and then when I knew that we were going to be talking about it, I was like, oh, I, could, I should watch it again. You know, I've, it felt like something I really wanted to go back to, um, you know, and I had really fond memories of. And that first season especially is just so, like the structure of it is so perfect. And just the little, you know, the, the wonderful, you know, jokes that they have, like um, in The Good Place You Can't Swear. <laughs> so, you know, Eleanor's always saying fork and shirt. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really, I don't know, wonderfully funny. Um, and it does, I found that last episode, I just cried mm. all the way through mm. it. Um, mm. Because even though it's a comedy, it really, uh, you really, you know, over the four seasons come to care about the characters. And it has a very, I, I feel like that final episode especially has a very beautiful meditation on, you know, what it is to live a good life and to know when your life is done and to accept that. And yeah, it just, and while also being, you know, incredibly funny. So mm. yeah, I could see myself returning again and again. I like the idea that you, you comfort watch it. Yeah. Yeah. There are certain episodes that, uh, yeah, I, I often will just sort of, um, yeah, like just that they, they seem like a family, 
<laughs> I don't know like I, I don't know I, yeah I, yeah I find this um sorry I don't think I wrote to you about this but I find this connection between death and love and funniness I don't know there's something very beautiful to me about that yeah I just yeah that there's something really beautiful about it yes no I agree yeah it's so good one of the other things and you touched on this um and I think that these because of course ever since we first started talking about this I've been thinking about sort of places where um your work kind of imbricates with or you know intersects with um good place and one of the things that is relatively obvious is that both works um like I think notes on womanhood definitely and um you know sort of explicitly but I think your work ever since I first met it has always had this interest in research or theory or um yeah like like ideas from um perhaps outside of um imaginary writing or creative writing or that kind of thing or yeah I don't that's silly to make a delineation and then the good place is similar in that it brings in these quite hard theoretical ideas and you know like I always think of that episode with the trolley problem where they actually literally build a trolley to do the trolley problem um but yeah I guess I'm interested if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your decisions around theory in this book. Yeah, no, I mean, that is, I think that's why I loved The Good Place so much is that it uh, personalises these, uh, what can be quite hard to understand ethical problems, you know, it, um, it like it performs them mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And so you get to experience them with the characters. Uh, and I think that's, you know, like when I, I came to The Good Place, because I was looking for something to watch. I was like, oh, I don't have anything. And then my husband had watched it and he was like, you should watch The Good Place. And I was like, what, you know, what is it? And he's like, it's, you know, it's a comedy series. And I'm like, well, I've, I don't really watch comedy. And he's like, you will like this, you know, because it has philosophy in it. And I was like, mm, oh, okay, yeah. I'll give it a try. And of course I loved it. Um, yeah, I, my book definitely does engage with theory in that same way. Or well, that's what I wanted to do was to look at different, um, you know, theories about, aging or uh, womanhood or gender and then try to try them on you know in my own life to see how I experience them I feel there's a real difference between knowing something uh, you know I could go read about the trolley problem or I could you know go read uh, you know Judith Butler and that's a different type of knowing to an experiential knowing in my body and I think that is what I've been moving to a lot more as I've gotten older is this um, way of really appreciating that embodied knowledge, you know? And so, yeah, in Notes on Womanhood, I, I, you know, I mean, I wrote it over three years and so I would read something and then I'd sit with it for a while and think about it and meditate on it and try to see how it fit me, like trying on different outfits. I was trying on Mm, different mm. theories and through that sort of embodied understanding, it, it took me somewhere else because this is what I think is one of the real like there is so much that is just fucking marvelous about this book and one of the things I think for me is oh I just love it thank you so much for writing it um like one of the things that I think is really interesting for me is this idea that um what am I trying to say it's it's making an argument 
and totally disagree with this. It's making an argument, but it doesn't feel like it has to come to any solid permanent conclusion, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. And I really love this idea of trying on. Yeah, trying on. It just it just seems like such a great um, and such a uh, refreshing and compelling way to read about these things, you know, like. I think in particular that chapter about Butler's work and the way that it's this fantastic sort of interplay between um, Sheila and the work and it just makes it so vital and relevant and, and something to sort of bring into life, which I think is really successful. You've done a PhD as well. And I wonder, I wonder, is that sort of a continuation of where you were or did the PhD did it change any of the ways you think or research or um, any of the things that you wanted to bring into the work? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, it was such a learning experience for me. It taught me how to research and use you know, use what I found and construct an argument and uh, over you know quite a long work in a way that I hadn't learned before. But I yeah, I found in a way I feel like Notes and Womanhood is like a um, like doing the opposite of what I did with my PhD. I, with a PhD, I, you know, I was working in the realm of literary criticism, which I found uh, I'd never, because my undergrad was in fine arts, not in mm-hmm. English. So I'd never encountered it before. And I found it very hard and quite alienating because I found it very intellectual and I found it hard to take the ideas um, into the world, uh, which was interesting mm-hmm. because I was looking at Robert Haas's work and uh, his first four collections and very much the poems I was looking at were were him arguing that there are types of experiences that exist outside of or beyond words, um, and that there is a knowledge the body has all of its own. And that while a poem points to things in the world, the poem itself, when you interact with it, is an experience. And that experience is as important as the as what it, as what it refers to. So the the experience of language, you know, is one thing. And it was a thing in itself. And so that was, you know, I, I was kind of wrestling with loving that idea of this knowledge outside of words while trying to work it into words. And um, I mean, it was, a, it was a great, I loved doing the PhD and I had wonderful supervisors. But when I came to write Notes on Womanhood, it, as you say, I didn't want to sort of answer a question. I wanted to allow for space and multiplicity of experiences and this more in, embodied knowledge you know while also putting the theory there because I do think it's um very useful you know psychology and philosophy and uh other ways of understanding the world to sort of understand it and but then not see it as uh rigid uh and Mm -hmm. to be able to you know take what you need from it or learn what you need from it and then you know move move to the next thing so Mm. I mean there's still a lot of academic research in Notes on Womanhood but I wouldn't call it an academic book it's it's really interesting you saying um that idea of sort of not getting stuck in something because what I find really interesting is that that seems almost rigorous academically then you know because we've got this sort of standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing in academia like it seems that to move on seems actually you know I, I know that um when I did do um, an undergraduate in English, um, yeah, there, there was a lot, you know, I needed to sort of position myself as a certain kind of thing. And I think that that's what's great about the structure of Notes on Womanhood is that it moves on 
Yeah, it does. And I just, yeah, just going back to that amazing image of trying on, I, re- I really like that. I, I did, you wrote something to me, which I really, really loved. And I'm just going to read okay. it back to you. That'll be weird. That'll be weird for you. Um, But yeah, <laughs> but also something that I've realized about my book is that in parts, it's about the journey of moving from control, black and white thinking about womanhood to embracing mess, difference, imperfection, and seeing the beauty in those things learning to be human I think the good place does something similar even though the premise is there is some objective good and bad the show immediately subverts the idea because all the main characters are shades of gray and changeable there's something so beautiful there about the capacity of people to transform and love yeah I guess it's just such a beautiful quote for starters but I also wonder about the ways that the book changed over the writing of it to accommodate these ideas, you know, like it's interesting when I was talking to Anthony Lapwood the other day, he he sort of said this interesting thing about how we write a book over three years and we're not the same person at the end of the book as we were at the start of the book, which has never occurred to me. But I just wonder like how much of the structure of the book was kind of there at the beginning, like um, having read a few of the earlier things that looked like they were shaping up to be the book can you talk a little bit about the I guess I'm talking about like the genesis of writing it yeah definitely definitely uh so well I mean the the book started with an essay that I wrote after having a hysterectomy um when I was 40 and so I'd I had that hysterectomy because I'd had um very very early stage cancer and it was preventative um and I'm fine uh but I my surgeon at the time uh after he'd done the operation came to see me the next day and oh well actually before the surgery he said to me um that the operation wouldn't make me less of a woman which I was just so I was stunned into silence in that moment and then after the surgery he made a comment about my ovaries I think uh smiling at him because that he'd made them in it was just so weird and horrible uh and so I I just felt that I I needed to write about this in some way and also um, my father is transgender and it had occurred to me that we were both women without uteruses mm-hmm. uteruses Uter- uteri you I, anyway <laughs> um who knows and and so this that that became an essay that was on uh, called Hidden Woman that mm, was on mm. the Pantograph Punch. And and there was really good, you know, like a really positive reaction to the essay. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I, I was kind of trying to write a collection, another collection of poetry at the time, but I kept on coming back to this idea of really wanting to know, you know, like wanting to figure out what my womanhood was because, um, because I really didn't know. I didn't, you know, I didn't know beyond... Uh, beyond descriptions that were, you know, biological or um, kind of uh, within the gender binary, mm, you know, mm, like mm. as an opposition to male. And and also what it meant coming into midlife, you know, I just turned 40 and had a hysterectomy and it felt like something I wanted to explore. Uh, so then I just, I started writing around it and then I had a, um, a coffee with my friend, uh, Sarah Bickerton, and she and I were talking, you know, we're around the same age and we were talking about midlife and how we didn't, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. We, we didn't know where we were going. <laughs> we knew what the script was for being a teen in our twenties and thirties and what we were trying to achieve you know, in our, um, in terms of relationships and careers and security and, and those sorts of things. And, 
and then we, we ran, we'd run out of script mm, mm, mm. and then there was this like big hole until old age and then death <laughs> and I was just like and I sort of in my head thought I'd just be young until I was 70 yeah, yeah. you know and like and and so I, I I just started to write around that and explore and as I explored and read you know a lot of other people's work I then started to write and then I realized you know I was kind of writing for myself I thought oh maybe I'll write just another essay and then I realized I was actually writing this bigger work mm-hmm. with this with a bigger structure that um where each so there are I don't know how many chapters there are seven chapters in my book and then an afterword and each chapter can sort of stand alone as an essay but they all do work in this bigger bigger structure and which is also something uh that I um when when you asked about something funny to bring along uh you know the good place has such an interesting structure for me with each uh, you know, it kind of goes from life to death, mm. even, even though the life is the you know first coming into the good place. And you know, like that first season has this each each episode, but it has this larger structure with a big reveal at the end. And I'm very interested in those ideas of kind of like nested storylines and how how we can reveal things and how we can weave things together. So the you know for the good life, it's a viewer, but for my book, it's a reader. You know, we'll get to the end of the chapter or a couple of chapters and suddenly things are, are almost more than the sum of their parts mm, like mm. they fit together in a way that that you know <laughs> where, where it provides some realization or um or satisfaction I really I really love what you're saying about structure and I think you know that is one of the joys of reading you know having read that essay separately and then the way that that essay sits in the book now it, there's this bigger conversation going on which I just think is so great you talked a little bit about the structure of one of the chapters is um, the one that sort of deals with ritual and rituals. Oh, that's a hard word to say. Um, and I just wonder, you you suggested that there's a possibility that it may take something from sort of like the rhythms of comedy in a way. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think it, it does. And I think it also goes back to what I was talking about with Robert Haas's work mm-hmm. of the idea of an embodied experience, um, you know, from reading something. And because the, the chapter ha- is about my friend Leslie and I walking the Tongariro crossing. There's quite a lot of uh, tramping in the book, yeah. which was a ritual that I, you know, what well, was something I started uh, back up again in my 40s and provided a space to remove myself from my life um, and kind of strip things away. I would, you know, do this tramping with a group of women or, you know, with Leslie, with one friend, and uh, and then have that space to contemplate my life, to, to give myself a, like a time out mm, to mm, think mm. about what was going on. And so the, the chapter has the story of Leslie and I doing the crossing. So a description of, you know, us walking and what we see and what we do. And that is interspersed with um, sort of a more theoretical discussion about, you know, rituals mm. that uh, where you know there are three stages um, that help you trans like transform and move through life stages. There is withdrawal and transformation and reintegration. Mm. I think the three are ish. And so what I what I wanted with the chapter was the reader to be reading about rituals while also reading an embodied description of a ritual, so they could experience it 
you know, and experienced the emotions with Leslie and I as we, you know, did the Tongariro crossing. And I hope that at the end of the chapter, uh, some readers might be like, you know, oh, I've I've just I've just experienced this as well as reading it, you know, like like a little Easter egg in a way. Mm. Um, and I yeah, and that I think that uh, <laughs> manipulation of the you know, <laughs> which is which is not a good word, but that is you know that is what it is. You're trying to create an experience um, that is incredibly satisfying, and I think that's that jokes have that as well. Mm. You know, there's that sort of so when you get to the end, you realize you can look back and that's what that first season of the good place does is that you, you look back and go, Oh, they were always in the bad place. And then you see it differently. Mm. You know, it's so, so you get to experience something twice. Mm. And I think that, you know, you, you can use that in, you know, like there's uh, you know, crime or writing mm. or mystery writing you know, has that all the time. Yeah. I really love that. And I think I, you're so right with humor. Like, I mean, so often what's funny is the misunderstanding, you know, not the misunderstanding, but so it, it's the hindsight that's funny. It's like, oh, you know, like, yeah, um, yeah I don't know, like um, the reassessment of the situation. Like one of my favorite jokes in the whole wide world is um, a horse walks into a bar, bartender says, why the long face? And like just that, you know, like sometimes just that idea of sort of reassessing <laughs> and sort of recalibrating yeah. yourself is where the humor comes, I think. Um, I think I, I, I'm really interested especially with this book and like I think that sometimes comedy is used as a bit of a weapon in the way that um, people are often told to you know like can't can't you take a joke or why can't you lighten up Um, and I guess also it ties into these ideas that some people are funny and some people aren't funny and in the book I think there's a it, it sort of touches at this as well like do you think that sometimes humor is used as a weapon Oh, definitely, and um, I think I've I've many times have called people out on what I think are not funny mm, jokes mm. and being told you can't take a joke. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think joking can be a way for someone who's in a position of power to use that power to make someone else smaller or you know feel lesser or to take their humanity away um, in some kind of way. And you know, when women ref- refuse to collude with being made lesser then they're going to be called you know not funny or that they can't take a joke mm. um but women are obviously funny you know <laughs> <laughs> well the women I know are funny and then you think about like Tina Fey and Kate McKinnon and you know, well Kristen Bell from The Good Place yeah. so funny yeah. um Hannah Gadsby yeah um I, I do think it can be used as a weapon it's interesting though because like when when we first started talking about doing this podcast and you sent me um James uh, Acaster, yeah. yeah, and and he's also someone that my husband's been like, you should watch this, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I went and watched, you know, some of his um, stand up, which was so funny, and he he like he uses that power the other way around. Mm. So he's in a position of power, you know, he's a white cis male uh, who's a, you know a celebrity of uh, some kind. But, and I watched the um, the clip from his recent show where he calls out Ricky Gervais's jokes about the trans mm, community. Mm. And so, and it was, it was so clever because of the self-deprecation in it. You know, he's also in a way calling himself out. Mm. And also because it comes after a bit where he's just heckled his audience for being middle-class white people. Mm, mm. 
and and I thought, oh, this is a good use of power mm. here. Um, so yeah, so the you know the power uh, you know the power and comedy can be used, I think, in mm. you know, as a weapon, but also um, as a support if that makes sense. Yeah, because I think what's so interesting there as well is, um, and I think I talked a little bit to Brian about this during our discussion, is like the audience gets implicated. Like I find myself going, yeah, 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 yeah funny, funny, funny. And then that line about, you know, because if there's one group of people that need, you know, and it just, I just, I totally know what you mean. Like it's that thing where, um, and I think as a writer, I'm really interested in learning from that sort of stuff. Like it, it's really interesting. Yeah. Like what does one do with privilege? You know, like, yeah, I, which I think is one of the great things that your book talks about as well. You know, like what's to be done, you know, what's to be done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, and it's, um, you know, I feel like there's, I'm very messy in my book, yeah. uh, which is one of the things about moving from a place of, you know, black and white and control, which I would also put kind of academia in there as yeah. well, like academic practice yeah. to mess and not knowing mm. and being okay not knowing and exploration mm. and multiplicity, um, you know, that I'm, I, I have goals, but it's okay to not quite know where I'm going or um it was it was interesting that because there's a section uh you know in the book about care work as well mm. and you know my husband and I are trying to figure out that you know the scene about the socks oh. where I I have a f- full <laughs> you know I know everything about my son's life and these socks these merino socks which my husband accidentally put in the dryer and shrunk and we have this ridiculous fight about it um which is also serious because because I feel that I'm taking on all the you know emotional load of the family. It is such a funny, I don't know, there's something so amazing about that scene. And I think one of the things I did want to ask you about is like, I've talked yeah. about how humour can be bad, but I'm just thinking like in long-term relationships where we're, you know, like I don't want to blow everything up. Um, sometimes humor can be really helpful in those situations. Yeah. It, you know, like where I can sort of say something in jest and we can have a laugh and there's the lightness, but also the seriousness maintains in the in the joke, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yes, no, definitely. I I if Jim, my husband and I are having an argument, I'll often make a joke as a circuit breaker. Mm, mm, um mm. just to say, you know we're being ridiculous here you know we're arguing over socks or the rubbish or something else but usually what we're arguing about is that we're both human and tired yeah. and it's <laughs> sad and, and and we can't run out of the capacity to be kind to each other mm. and you know it can kind of bring us back and I think that yeah it also also with my son um so if he does something that's not very kind and I've talked to him about it and he's feeling a bit of sh- ashamed of himself I'll make him laugh mm. because it will, it will reconnect us. It'll bring us, yeah, back onto the same side. And, um, you know, like while I want him to learn that, you know, doing something selfish or, you know, dangerous or whatever is not okay, that I, I want him to understand that we're all just muddling along. Like I don't want him to get stuck in that shame. And, and joking, joking with him will bring him, you know, like we, we are smiling again and connecting again. and. Um, so I think it can be really important in in relationships. Mm. And I just I don't know, like I mean, everything 
that I'm hearing you say and like that's in the book as well is just this wonderful like I really find it interesting this idea of being on the same side because you know like I guess humor is kind of cultural and yeah like we need to you know it reaffirms our sort of um understanding of each other like you say and it sort of reaffirms that absurdity of life you know (laughs) sorry I got yeah I got deep again about funniness but you know like it kind of yeah like you say that idea that we are just muddling along you know doing our own thing and yeah I just I just think it's so interesting um it's almost like some of the things that make humor difficult you know it has the capacity for something else as well which I think is really interesting yeah Um, you write in your book a little bit you mentioned Hannah Gadsby before and you mentioned um, you write a little bit about Nanette and I'm just interested in what it meant to you to include that in the book Oh, I I remember watching Nanette and I didn't really know what I was going into. Mm, mm. So I thought, oh, I'll just watch this. You know, I think it was a Netflix special. Yeah. Um, and it was just so, I mean, so funny, mm. but also so tender and vulnerable um, and real. And I, I think I felt like I really needed that, that to, to, uh, hear another woman's experience even though it's very different to my own um and all its realness but also with the humor that that it that it could be both there was something is I think there's something really you know um and I just oh I remember just crying Mm. and crying Mm. afterwards um yeah (laughs) in that good way in that cathartic way but yes it, it I think there was like the there's there's something about the humor and I think this is with the good place as well that allows you to hold hold in yourself the seriousness of like it kind of cocoons the hard stuff mm, mm. in a way where if it's if things are unrelentingly hard or or difficult I I can't I, I find it hard to you know like say watch a movie that's just all trauma or like I can't watch war movies mm because they they um it feels too much in my body and I think that's yeah and it's just this I think there's a lot of strength in humor as well you know it's a sort of uh it has a sort of joyousness and optimism to it so yeah I I if people haven't watched Nanette definitely mm. get take tissues get <laughs> tissues to, <laughs> to to watch it um one of the things that I think so interesting about you what you're saying well to me god so narcissistic but like I really I was just thinking as you were saying it I was thinking that if I do read something that's unrelentingly um serious and heavy I always find it funny you know what I mean like it just doesn't yeah. seem it seems almost ridiculous compared with something that's got that smattering of humor if you know what I mean like I just I can't buy it as real which is just yeah I don't know like which is so weird because I think sometimes people write comedy off as the lighter kind of thing yeah but it doesn't yeah I don't yeah I don't think that really is true is it It, you know like comedy often deals with really serious issues it's just also makes you you know makes you laugh Mm. and yeah no I definitely when I was writing Notes of Womanhood I wanted to have and and I mean my (laughs) uh, my husband says my humor's um, so dry as to be evaporated, <laughs> but <laughs> which is very kind of him, uh, and he's probably not wrong. But you know, I wanted to have moments of 
um, of humour, just little touches of humour. Like at one point I'm, uh, you know, writing about a particular study and and the paragraph had gotten really wordy and, you know, but necessarily, and I think I ended the sentence with something like, so bear with me or please bear with me. Because I'm like, oh God, the reader's just going to be like, what are we, what are we here for? (laughs) You know, so I, so just having that acknowledgement of, of things rather than trying to hide it or rather than trying to disguise it that that I was just like please dear reader continue <laughs> reading on it gets better <laughs> after this paragraph I promise I was just thinking over the years like after um like when you say that thing about the description of your sense of humor I was thinking some of my deepest belly laughs have been with you and things that you've said and I was just thinking oh, that's exactly you. it though <laughs> it's it's the dryness that I think I love so much I just love it so much hey we're just about finished and I've just got a couple more questions okay. one of them is um around um like you you've talked about how comedy can sometimes deal with serious things and um you know, it, it's interesting that um, uh, the, the creator of The Good Place has just written this really amazing book on philosophy, like how to live a perfect life. And um, I was just thinking um, one of the things, James Acast is someone that I think talks very interestingly about ethics and about, um, you know, because stand-up is kind of non-fiction often, you know, like it's often, yeah. often it isn't, but often it is non-fiction. And I just wonder what you learned about this idea of telling our stories and telling stories about our society and how other people kind of come into that. I just wonder, you know, what you've learned about the ethics of writing nonfiction. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's something that I thought a lot about Mm. while writing the book because I was writing about uh, my parents Mm -hmm. um, and, and just many other people, you know, in my life, my friends. And, and I think, I think for me, it was about trying to figure out what, you know, writing my experience compared to um, trying to own someone else's experience. Mm, mm, mm. So, and making, uh, I, one reviewer, I think it was on Nine to Noon, um, someone reviewed my book and said it was very careful um, and, and not necessarily in a bad way, uh, but, you know, that, that I'd, uh, I'd been very careful around saying this is my own experience that I'm writing mm. about. And I think that was very, and for me, I felt that that care is in there, but it's for me consideration mm. that as you know, that I have to understand my place of privilege as well, you know, as best I can, um, which is that I am a, you know, a white woman, um, cisgender woman, and I don't want my, you know, and middle class, and I don't want my, <laughs> James A. would hate me, um, <laughs> I don't want my, <laughs> you know, experience. It, ca- it can't stand for all experiences of womanhood. Mm, mm. And the um, the reviewer said that she hoped that we would get past this point where we um, where we had to make those statements. And I'm like, well, that sounds great, but I'm not sure when this post, <laughs> you know, racial society, post-class society is going to exist ever with humans. Um, so it was it was interesting to me. And but yeah, I, I feel like the in, in a way that ethics of how I approached. Um, writing the book is very much in the first chapter. So I also wrote about, mm. um, you know, using resources that could be found uh, easily, mm. like either online or, you know, that were freely accessible or in a library. So not using a lot of, um, you know, things that you had to pay for that. And I felt that, that um, so if people wanted to read further, they could easily. Um, so all of those little decisions. And also then, you know, 
everyone mentioned in the book by name and also some people who who weren't um I asked them if I could you know they they all gave me permission to use their stories uh when you know as part of my story uh so yeah it was yeah it's, it's definitely something that I um I've thought a lot about and it was also it was really interesting because my best friend read the book and she said to me she said oh because you know she knows all the minutiae um of my life and she's like oh there's so much left out <laughs> like uh, she said it just occurred to her that that you know that I could shape a narrative um mm, mm. That, that, it, that that is not like I have included everything yeah. you know and and part of you know so and part of that is figuring out what is mine and what is mm. not um what you know what is important to the story and this theme and what is not mm. um and you know, what are my obligations to other people, which ties back to, you know, ethics and the good place. So, so those, there were all those questions and, you know, that I had to come to the work with. But um, yeah, it was a real, it was a real process doing that. And really, um, I don't know, I think really empowering too, because I got to really think, what is my story here? What is it I want to share with other women? And yeah, that was, you know, that was, I think, produce the book that I wanted to write at the end because mm. I think that's one of the things that I really respect in it as well as um I was just um thinking of um Sheila he said like I use this there are, I only know three things in my life and this is one of the things that I talk about a lot but this idea that ethics is a creative problem not a um you know ma- making making a work that I feel okay about is actually a creative problem, not an ethical problem. You know what I mean? Like I'm not trying to trick, mm. trick my way into making people feel good about it, you know, like, and I think that's what I love about it. And personally, I, I thought, it, I think it's interesting the way the book reminds us of whose the story is and the way that, um, that stops us sometimes in our tracks, you know, like I can sort of sink into, you know, cause I always want absolutes cause I find life hard and it's really good to be reminded, you know, like to sort of push me a little bit yeah. out of the narrative that I'm sort of sinking into a bit to remind me who's writing the book. And I think that it works really, really well. You know, like I think it works really well in the book. Um, Thanks. My last question, I just realized I didn't prep you for, so you can totally just say ixnay. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, what is God? No. Um, what, <laughs> what I was wondering about, I'm asking everybody this because I'm a little bit obsessed with it myself. I'm wondering about how we sustain our writing. Um, I might be talking financially. If you want to talk financially, that's cool. But I think I'm talking as well. Um, you know, this is a huge work that you've made. You know, there's a lot of reading. There's a lot of writing. There's, um, you know, the other parts of life that need to be taken care of. Um, and you you said in your introduction that you're also a teacher. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what sustains your writing? Like, how what what are the things you need to keep going? Yeah, that's such a great question. I yeah, I don't I don't know how to answer it. Um, I'll do I'll do my best. I mean, the space and space and time mm-hmm. are the the things that sustain my writing the most, and just I think also belief in the project I'm working yeah. on. So that's what really sustained this book because there were some really, really hard times. I got quite sick in the middle of writing it because I was so burned out from trying to parent and work and, and write. Mm. Um, and, you know, we were in a pandemic mm. and um, things were financially precarious mm. for my family for a while. And yeah, it, but, but it felt really, um, felt important 
it felt like I this book was in me and it needed to be outside of me mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 that was the you know that was the right thing to do um I think I have a very good uh partnership with my husband um you know we provide each other we take turns we provide each other space so uh, I did the PhD and then he went off and did a you know a, a big massive project of his own mm. and then it was my turn again and so I wrote the book so we're both both creative people who um who, who need to explore in that way so I think that's been very good and I just you know have a I think that very supportive family environment um other writers mm. definitely mm. around me feeling you know uh having a wonderful writers group and being part of um you know being part of the writing community which I think is really wonderful uh in New Zealand um snacks lots of snacks <laughs> so many snacks <laughs> essential <laughs> like I have a I have a, a tea like a tea drawer like yep. all these different types of tea um <laughs> so very sustaining <laughs> but yes and I think I think reading and also you know like it, it was like this this book you know I started writing and then I started reading and then that gave me ideas and I became very excited about it and then I wrote more and so that you know like I had I felt like I was always had these little bits of input um so yeah but it is hard I think it is incredibly hard to write things and do life to adult you know (laughs) be an adult (laughs) it is tricky um what's your go-to writing snack you can be totally you can name um brand names if you need to (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's exciting. Um, I I tend to have a chocolate of some kind, like just you know, like Whitakers or something like that, and mandarins, <gasps> yum, um, almonds. So I like a mandarin almond chocolate like snack plate. Um, and then I'll I'll have coffee and then also a cup of tea. Oh. so I I have currently on my desk <laughs> where I'm talking to you from. I have a mandarin. And a cup of tea. I'd already eaten the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I just think um, like hydrate or dihydrate. It's you just gotta yeah. backwards, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been amazing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>